you have your Bibles, you can flip over to Hebrews chapter 8. We will, in just a moment, read verses uh, 6 through 11, Hebrews chapter 8. Uh, we are in a series uh, that will wrap up next week uh, called New Testament Survey, where we've been taking a separate book of the Bible each Sunday throughout the summer months, and we've been preaching just that one book of the Bible. Um, and so today we come to the book of Hebrews. Now, there are four things about the book of Hebrews that people are in agreement about. I'm sorry, that are in disagreement about. Number one, they disagree about who the recipients of this letter are, like who the letter was written to. Uh, also, people disagree about when the letter was written. They also di disagree about who the author of this particular book of the Bible was. And also, people disagree about why the letter was written. You say, Gordon, that's pretty much everything. People are disagreeing about everything. Well, yes, that's absolutely true. It is. People just don't seem to be able to um, come together, at least biblical scholars don't, about this. But yet, there are good answers to these questions. And so, we are going to take those questions as our outline this morning as we look at the book. I thought I was a little loud. As we take a look at the book of Hebrews. So um, if you have your Bibles, let's stand and read together. Hebrews chapter 8. We'll be reading verses 6 through 11. Hebrews chapter 8, verses 6 through 11. And here the author is describing uh, the temple and what takes place at the temple. So let's read together. But the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old. <laughs> Check one, two, check, check, check one, two, check one, two, check one, two, and we're off and running. Okay, so let's tackle these questions one at a time. First question is, who are the recipients of this letter? Well, it seems obvious because the letter is written to the, what's it called? What's the title of it? The Hebrews, that's right. So it's the Jewish people that we're, that we're talking about here. That's the who this letter is written to. And so much of the subject matter here in the book of Hebrews is about things that took place amongst the Jewish people. Um, the letter, in fact, not only is written to Jewish people, but it's written to Jewish people who have become believers. That is, it's written to Jewish Christians, if you would. And so the letter refers over and over to the sacrifices and to the rituals surrounding worship at the temple in Jerusalem. Um, but these Jewish recipients were not just any Jewish people. They were, again, these Jewish believers. Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 12 says that the recipients were brethren. I mean, you know how when you're old school church, people say, hey, brother, hey, sister, how you doing? Right. So we're, we're talking about people who are part of the family of God. And so that's the same thing. The recipients are referred to as 
brother or as sister. Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 9 calls them beloved. Hebrews 3 and verse 1 says that they are brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling. And so the recipients of this letter are Jewish people who have become believers, who have converted to Christianity, are now followers of Christ, and they are more than likely people who live in and around the city of Jerusalem. Question number two, when was the letter written? Well, the letter had to have been written before 70 A.D. The reason being, does anybody know what took place in 70 A.D.? We just got done talking about it in one of our adult Sunday school classes. The destruction of Jerusalem, that's right. The, the armies of Vespasian, his, led by his son Titus, um, came down, marched along the eastern seaboard of the Mediterranean Sea, headed for Israel to put down the Jewish revolt that had begun in 66 A.D., and then finally they uh, showed up there in Jerusalem around 69 A.D. and circled the city in 70 A.D., the city of Jerusalem, and laid siege to it, and then eventually the city uh, walls fell, and over a million people were destroyed. Well, the author of this letter of Hebrews talks about the, uh, what happens in the temple, talks about the rituals and the sacrifices and everything that was conducted there, and speaks of the rituals as though they are still happening at the time of the writing. Well, you can understand that if the temple had been destroyed, then there's no way they could have made any sacrifices. And so this, we, we posit that the letter then had to be written before the destruction of Jerusalem, before the destruction of the temple, because the author anticipates that the things he's talking about in Jerusalem that took place were taking place at the present time of the writing of the letter. We also know that the letter uh, was more than likely written before 55 A.D. And the, I'm sorry, after 55 A.D. And so the reason for that being is because Timothy is mentioned toward the end of the letter, and he's not introduced. It's not like, hey, Timothy, this guy who's out there working hard for Jesus. It's just Timothy. Like, y'all know Timothy, right? And Timothy didn't become well-known in the uh, early church until around 55 A.D. So the letter had been written sometime between 55 and 70 A.D. Question number three. See, I told you there was good answers to all these questions. Y'all were just sitting on the edge of your seat, waiting to find these out. Hang with me. Question number three. Who wrote the book of Hebrews? Well, Personally, I think that Barnabas wrote the book of Hebrews. I spent much of my dissertation work studying a guy by the name of Barnabas in the New Testament scriptures, read every relevant text, read all the historical texts, extra biblical texts, all this kind of stuff. Spent a lot of time studying Barnabas, and I really think that he was the guy that wrote the letter to the Hebrews. Some people would say it was Paul. I don't think it was Paul because the style of the writing doesn't fit the Apostle Paul. And in all of the letters that Paul writes, he always introduces himself at the beginning of the letter. On this occasion, the author is unknown, which was totally unique for the Apostle Paul to do. And so because of those reasons and because of my study of Barnabas, I think that he's wrote it. he wrote it. Some people say Apollos. That's in another story, and I just don't want to go there. So in any case, uh, but here's the, here's the one thing I want to say about who wrote the letter. This is not a matter of orthodoxy. If you think that Paul wrote the letter, and I think that Barnabas wrote the letter, when Jesus returns, he will not say, all those who said Barnabas wrote the letter, you can come on up to heaven. This is not a matter of, you, you know, you're going to miss heaven because you didn't get the author of the book right. Your, 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 your eternal state in heaven is not in jeopardy. Um, so just want to go ahead and put that out there, okay? Question number four is, why was the letter written? Well, the letter was written because the Jewish believers in Jerusalem were immature in their faith. That faith, that is, they were, the author calls them babes in Christ. They were babies in Christ. They were either brand new to the faith or they had been Christians for a long time and just really hadn't made any strides forward, hadn't grown any 
in that, making forward progress in their walk with Christ. And so the writer of Hebrews says to them, Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 14, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith that we profess. And he also said, Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 23, let us hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess. Now, why is the writer saying this to them? Well, he's saying this to them because he wants to show them that Jesus is far superior than any other ism, any other ology that's out there that they could maybe jump ship and join on board with. Because what's happening for the people who are receiving this letter is that their faith is beginning to waver. They are beginning to swerve from side to side. They're thinking about maybe jumping ship from Christianity and jumping on board with back to Judaism, returning back to Judaism, or whatever it is that they might be jumping on board with. And so the writer is saying, hey, look, there's, what we have in Jesus is far superior, so much better than anything else that you could possibly jump ship and join back with. Um, and so, uh, so the writer makes that point all throughout here. But before we get into the superiority of Jesus here, let's uh, summarize what we've talked about so far. The recipients were, y'all listen so well, so glad about that. You're thinking about my baked beans, I know you are. Jewish believers, they were Jewish believers, Jewish Christians. The date of the letter was between 55 and 70 A.D. The author, in my opinion, was the Apostle Barnabas. Some say Paul, some say Apollos. It's not a matter of orthodoxy. And the subject matter was the superiority of Jesus over Judaism. So don't waver in your faith. Don't jump ship because times are getting tough uh, and, and go back to some other ism or ology. Uh, don't fall back on that. Stick with Jesus. Now, the writer goes on to say that there are three main reasons why Jesus is so much farther superior than all these other isms and ologies that they might join with uh, that are out there. The writer says, number one, that in Jesus we have a superior covenant, a superior covenant with God than through any of these other religions. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 15 says, Christ Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant between God and sinners. And then he's quoting from the Old Testament, Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 8. We read it a few moments ago. For the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel. Here's the writer's argument. He spells it out here. Verse 7. We also read this. So if there had been nothing wrong with the first covenant, the first covenant being the Mosaic covenant, being the covenant that they had cut with God at Sinai, Mount Sinai, all those years back before, 1,500 years before the time of, of the writing of this letter. Um, and, so, uh, and so if that covenant was superior than, than what they're out there doing today with all the rituals and the sacrifices of animals, if there had been nothing wrong with it, then no place would have been sought for another. In other words, there'd be no reason to have a second covenant if the first covenant was perfectly fine. Let me put this in language that we can understand. If the iPhone 5 was the best that there ever was and the best that there ever could be, then there would be no reason to come out. Just keep making iPhone 5s, right? Or if the BlackBerry Plus was so much better than anything else that was out there, why come out with... Anyway, I just had to say that for Jason's sake. But um, in any case... The point is, if, if the first covenant was so good, and if it was so perfect, and if it was the best that there could be, then why would God want to talk about here in the Old Testament, talk about coming with 
forward with a second, a new covenant. But Jesus knew that the old covenant was not sufficient. He knew that it was only ever intended to be temporary, that it was rather deficient, which is why Jesus provided a new covenant with superior provisions to it. And what are these superior provisions? Let me give you just a couple of them. We read some of them a moment ago. Verse 10, chapter 8 and verse 10. I will put my laws in their minds and I will write them on their hearts. In the Old Testament, the Jewish people did not have the Holy Spirit writing the laws of God on their hearts. Also, verse 10, I will be their God and they will be my people. See, in the new covenant, we are adopted children of God. This is something brand new that comes along with the second covenant, with the new covenant, the better covenant. And here's another one, verse 11, for no longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least to the greatest. See, a personal knowledge of God was not something that was available to people under the first covenant. The only people that got to talk to God was the high priest, and he only got to talk to God one day a year. He went in back there behind the Holy of Holies. Otherwise, I had to send the priest ahead of me with my prayers, with my petitions, with my requests to talk to God. But under this new covenant, now I have access to God. And these are just some of the new provisions that the new covenant makes, uh, making it superior to the old. Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 6 says, But in fact, the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one, since the new covenant is established on better promises. Friends, Jesus is the mediator of a superior covenant, and that superior covenant has with it, comes with it, superior promises. Um, all right, so the second way that Jesus is superior, the author, remember, he's making his case for don't waver, don't go back to Judaism. You got something far better here in Jesus. And so he's making his case. The first thing he says is you got a superior covenant with superior promises. Second thing he says is, is that you have a superior in Jesus, a superior high priest than all the other high priests that have come before him. Hebrews 7 and verse 23. Now there have been many of those earthly high priests since the people who had preceded Jesus were prevented by death from continuing in their office. But, verse 24, but because Jesus lives forever, he has a priesthood that is, what's the word there? Permanent. Permanent. It lasts forever and ever. Uh, Verse 25, therefore Jesus is able to save completely those who come to God through him. The Bible doesn't say that he saves completely those who come to God through Buddha. It doesn't say that Jesus saves completely those who come to God through Confucius. It doesn't say that Jesus saves completely those who come to God through Joseph Smith or through Muhammad. It says that God saves completely those who come to him through Jesus and through Jesus Christ alone. Jesus is able to do, the text says, verse 25, because Jesus always, he's able to do this because he always lives interceding for them. See, we have a high priest who lives forever. Unlike the high priest who had preceded Jesus, who were born into this world, grew up in this world, died in this world, Jesus lives on forever. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. He is ever interceding on our behalf. He is our high priest in heaven who gives us access to God the Father, and that is continually, and that is forever. He is a superior high priest. Why would you want to go back to Judaism, the author's asking. Amen? But wait, there's more. One more. Verse number three. Uh, Not only is Jesus offered a superior covenant and is he a superior high priest, 
But number three, Jesus also offers a superior forgiveness for our sins. Look at chapter 10 and verse 11. A couple verses here. Chapter 10 and verse 11. It says, day after day, every priest stands at the altar and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices day after day, again and again, which can never take away sins. Verse 12. But Jesus, when Jesus, this priest, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, and where did Jesus offer one time the sacrifice for sins? He did that where? On, on the cross, right? That's where he offered that sacrifice for sins. Having offered one sacrifice for sins for all of time, he sat down at the right hand of God. Now, why did Jesus sit down? Well, when you finish doing what you're doing, what do you do? You sit down. That's right. For some of you going to the next job. But Jesus was done. It was finished, he declared, and he sat down. And so that's what he's done. He sat down. Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 12. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. You know, wouldn't it be a great thing if our spouse, <clears throat> wives, were to say, I remember your sin no more. Uh, I, I don't want to get anybody in trouble here this morning. But uh, wouldn't that be interesting? Wouldn't that be great uh, to know that we're never going to discuss it again? We're never going to talk about it again? We're never going to revisit that again? We're never going to bring that up again? I remember it no more. Friends, listen, that's exactly what God does with our sin. Praise the Lord. And get this, I think it's there in verse 12, where there is forgiveness like this, that is total forgiveness, complete forgiveness, uh, amnesia type of forgiveness, where that kind of forgiveness exists, there is no further sacrifice needed. God remembers our sins no more. Folks, why don't we bring bulls and goats and sheep in here to Hebrew Christian Church why do we not let blood here at Hebron Christian Church? Why do we not burn sacrifices here at Hebron Christian Church and find a mercy seat somewhere and sprinkle some blood on the mercy seat? Why? Because Jesus Christ paid the price for our sins, shed his blood on the cross once and for all. There's no longer a need for sacrifices to be, to be made anymore. What Jesus did on the cross was permanent. What Jesus did on the cross was complete. It was total. And no more sacrifice for sins are ever needed. So let's summarize. The writer of Hebrews says, listen, why, why would you ever want to leave Jesus? You got a superior covenant with superior promises. Why would you ever want to leave a superior high priest who gives you access to the Father like we never had before? Why would you want to leave the superior forgiveness that Jesus offers us. Why would you want to go back into the temple and have to make all those sacrifices again? It's been done once and for all, never to have to be done again. Now, the reason, friends, that Jesus can give us all this superiority of covenant and, and, and high priest access and, and of forgiveness is because Jesus' blood is superior blood. Listen to what the letter says, Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 22. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. 
without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. That's what the Old Testament says. And that's why God requires the shedding of blood in order for the remission of sins to be granted. It's very simple. God wants for us to understand just how serious sin is. Then in order for it to be taken care of, blood has to be shed. An innocent life has to be taken. Friends, the reason that we've got a superior covenant with superior promises, the reason why we have a superior high priest who gives us access to the Father unlike the world had never known before, the reason why we have superior forgiveness of sins thrown into the depths of the sea where they'll be remembered no more is because of the superior blood of Jesus. Okay, that's our treatment of this text in the book of Hebrews. That's kind of the gist of what's going on here in the letter. I hope you get a sense of what's happening there. If you want to debate Paul and Apollos and Barnabas later, we can do that and over lunch. But in any case, what that means is it's time for us to ask our most important question, what difference does this make to my life? You say, Gordon, I really appreciate the, the theology lesson this morning, but how does this help me put gas in the car? My kids are driving me crazy. I'm ready to get him back to school. I mean, what difference does all this superior talk this morning have to do with my life? What difference does it make to me? Well, let's talk about that. You know, when Jesus was on the cross, he was bleeding and dying. He didn't have to be there. Nobody made him go. He was there because he chose to be there. What did he say to Pilate? He said, hey, Pilate, look, if I I could call down... Ten legions of angels. They'd scoop me up, take me on up to heaven, and forget about this mess. Why was Jesus there? He was there out of love. He was there because he loved you and he loves me. And the only way that our sins could be forgiven, the only way that we could enter into this superior covenant with a superior high priest, a superior forgiveness of sins, is if he stayed on that cross and gave his life for us. And so that's what he did. It's, a, it's, a, it's the love of Christ on display. Years ago, there was a very famous hymn writer named Isaac Watts. And one of the hymns that he wrote talks about or focuses on the superior blood of Christ. It's called Nothing But the Blood of Jesus. That's an old school song. Some of y'all maybe remember that. If you know the song, why don't you sing it along with me? What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Y'all sounded good. That was good. You know, there are some folks who might say that they're talking about a guy dying, shedding his blood. That sounds prehistoric. That sounds archaic. Sounds gory. But the people who say that, don't understand the power of the blood of Christ. Because only the blood of Christ 
is able to forgive us of our sins. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. They don't understand that without the blood of Jesus, there is no other way, and I repeat, no other way of piecing our broken lives back together, piecing back together our broken dreams, our broken hearts. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And at this realization, Watts just breaks forth in the praise. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other life-giving fountain I know, he says. There's nothing, nothing that compares with the blood of Jesus. You know, some of us here are relying on our own good works. We're going to stand before God someday in all of his holiness. And we think that we're going to stand before God and God's going to accept us into heaven because we've done a lot of religious activity, because of our punched our card at church or because we recycled or because we uh, helped out at the homeless shelter or whatever our good works were, mowed our neighbor's lawn, whatever it was. And we think that God's going to accept us into heaven and is going to embrace us into heaven. But friends, when we stand before the holiness of God, all of those things are going to be wiped away in an instant. And the only thing that's going to matter, the only thing that's going to shield us from God's holiness, the only thing that's going to allow God to welcome us into heaven, that's going to cover over our sins and wash away our sins is the blood of Christ. And so I want to ask you this morning, are you, friends, 100% sure that when you stand before God that you are covered in the blood of Jesus, that you are shielded by the blood of Jesus, that you have been washed in the blood of Jesus? If not, This is your moment. And in just a moment, we're going to pray. I'm going to offer a prayer. I'm going to ask you where you're seated just to pray silently. Follow me phrase by phrase, word by word. And you cover your heart, your life, in the blood of Jesus. Let's bow our heads together. Most gracious Heavenly Father, I recognize today that it's only by the blood of Jesus that my sins can be forgiven. In Jesus, I have a superior relationship with you. No other ism, no other ology, no other religion can offer me what Jesus And so I turn to you today, Jesus. I ask you to do in my heart what I cannot do for myself. To mend back together my broken heart, my broken life. Wash me clean. Set me free. I rely upon you, Jesus. I trust in you, Jesus, and in no other. Lord, as we now turn to this table to receive these elements of your broken body and of your shed blood, we are reminded again of your great love for us. You hung on the cross, not because the Father made you, not because you had to, 
but because you wanted to be there. You wanted us to have the opportunity to experience eternity with you forever. Lord, in these quiet times this morning, may we utter the praise of Isaac Watts. Oh, precious is the flow of that which makes me white as snow. We pray these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen.